Hi, you're listening to Manufactured, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. I'm your host, Kim von der Weert, a student of human rights, turned garment factory manager, turned sustainable fashion critic. On this show, I talk to some of the most integral people who manufacture what we wear. They aren't the people you see in fashion magazines. They're the people behind closed doors working in fashion supply chains. This episode is part of a mini-series that explains how different fabrics are made. We're going back to basics and asking industry insiders questions like, what are the production processes behind different fabrics? Who are the players involved? What are their incentives? And more. Because it's hard to have a conversation about how to make a material better or how to make a garment better if we don't understand how it's made in the first place. On this week's episode, we discuss the production processes behind a pretty infamous material, polyester. I'm joined by Sharon Chen, the Director of Business Development at Baichuan Resources Recycling, a leading manufacturer of recycled textiles in China, and we talk about how virgin and recycled polyester are made. Sharon grew up in both the U.S. and China. She graduated from Stanford University with a degree in materials science. Her entry point into the world of fashion was with a 3D printing startup working on a project with Adidas. She then went on to pursue a master's degree in China, which ultimately led her to joining Baichuan. Sharon tells us about the types of raw materials needed to make both virgin and recycled polyester, who they buy these inputs from, and how they're processed to ultimately become a yarn. She also takes us through spinning, weaving, and dyeing processes, and shares a bit about who their customers are. We talk about why traceability is so important to the company and how they approach this. Sharon, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for giving us your time today. Why don't we start with a little bit about Baichuan? I'm curious to know a little bit more about which parts of the production process you're doing. Are you doing everything from bottle cleaning all the way through to weaving, or just pieces of that process? Yeah, that's actually a great question, and I would say probably the distinguishing element of Baichuan is that yes, Baichuan does do everything. So we take the dirty bottles, and the first step of our facilities is to sort and clean and shred the bottles into flakes. So turn that into feedstock to our own yarn spinning operations that feed into our own fabric weaving operations. And that's actually quite atypical in the industry. Usually we'll see a pretty fragmented, the sorters will do the sorting and then they'll sell to spinners who make the yarn. And then that will be sold to a different entity that will do the weaving or knitting with the yarn. Why have you guys decided to take a different model? I think if you talk to the end use brands, a lot of the barrier that comes from trying to move into a recycled material is transparency. And in terms of supplier, that's also something that we think about a lot is how do we ensure that our when we claim that our fabrics are recycled, that we know they're recycled, especially in a very fragmented landscape. So there are different ways to approach that problem. But we've, we decided that, you know, just to take everything under our wing and start from the dirty bottles, which we know are dirty and post-consumer is 
the most straightforward way to go about it. And of course, there are quality benefits and cost benefits, basically the usual drivers that would push a company into vertical integration. Yeah. So let's talk about process because you already started to hint at this, but I want to go back to the beginning and I want to talk about inputs. And we kind of already like... uh, We had a a spoiler because we've been talking about bottles and people who are listening might be like, what, did I hear that right? Why are we talking about bottles? (laughs) Um, But can you tell us for context, what are the inputs first for virgin polyester? You know, what a spinner would buy exactly and from whom? And then in the case of recycled polyester, what's the primary raw material? What does it look like? What is it made of? From whom do you buy it and why? Yeah. Oh my gosh. All great questions. And I think first, before I take a stab at that, I would like to kind of make a material scientist distinction, (laughs) if I may. So one of the things when I stepped from the world of kind of materials and chemistry into textiles was I realized that the terminology, uh, there were some differences there. So actually polyester When I think of that as a material scientist, I understand that as a whole class of Mm. different kinds of materials. So there is something called PET, which is what our bottles are made of, but there are also different polyesters such as PTT, PBT are also used in, in textiles. And then we have something like PLA, which people might not really think of as a polyester, like the biodegradable cups, but that's actually chemically speaking, also a polyester. So Mm. when we talk about polyester in the textile industry, we're actually specifically talking about PET because that is by far the dominant type of polyester used in textiles. Um, So everything I share following this, including how it's made, the properties, Everything about polyester and textiles is PET. Okay, so let me rephrase my question. If we talk about the inputs for virgin polyester, meaning PET, what would a (laughs) spinner buy from whom? I mean, what does it look like? Can you sort of paint a picture of both like the material itself, but also maybe the commercial actors who are involved? And then we'll talk about our pet or recycled polyester. Yeah, totally. So on the virgin polyester side of things, if we go all the way back to the beginning, what you'll be looking at is a barrel of crude oil. And so that's taken out of the ground and sent to a petrochemical refinery where different components of that crude oil are separated out. So some becomes fuel and some becomes chemical feedstock, which is, you know, the portion that we're interested in. To make PET polyester, the feedstocks specifically are these building blocks called ethylene glycol and terephthalic acid. Um, There are also other related feedstocks that can be used, but those are kind of the main two building blocks. And then chemical companies will then take these building blocks and perform a chemical reaction called polymerization And basically, you mix these two feedstocks together, and there's heat and vacuum that's applied. And eventually, you get a polymer, which is often a fancy term for what we know as plastic, 
right? So we'll get this plastic material, PET, out from this chemical reaction. And when you say plastic, I'm imagining like something clear, something hard. I mean, is that fair? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So in the beginning of the reaction, these components would be liquid. And then as the reaction progresses, you'll get a more and more kind of viscous material until it becomes a solid and something clear, something hard. And usually the form that it's output in is pellets. So when you buy kind of the commodity feedstock for any sort of polyester processing, whether you're making packaging or textiles, you're buying these clear, hard plastic pellets of PET. You mentioned that it's like that the chemical companies are the ones who are kind of doing this transformation. Let's say you're a spinning mill and you're making virgin polyester. Would you be buying from a chemical company then? Yes. Um, Generally speaking, you would buy from a chemical supplier. So a chemical company that has performed the reaction and now sells the pellets. Um, Sometimes it can also happen through various trade companies and actors like that. But ultimately, the producers were the chemical company. I'm curious, like, the chemical companies who are doing this, first of all, are they operating in like a particular part of the world? Or is it happening kind of, are they based in lots of different places? Are they big companies? Yeah, so I don't have the specific numbers off the top of my head, but the vast majority of polyester virgin raw material is produced in China these days. And so those operations will generally be very capital intensive. So they're usually large operations. I think this idea of kind of a a larger chemical company, sometimes it's actually integrated from a oil company or it can be a subsidiary of one. Sometimes you see chemical companies actually integrate downstream into the textile and packaging industry. So in my understanding of the industry landscape, these chemical, the chemical manufacturers are generally fairly large players and not as distributed as, say, mills are. Right. Interesting. Okay, so the spinner is buying these plastic pellets. Let's switch gears for a second and talk about recycled polyester. What's the primary raw material in that case? And, you know, what is it made of? How does the process maybe differ from what you just described? Who are maybe some of the different commercial actors who might be involved in that? So for recycled polyester, by far the dominant way that we're doing recycling is a process called mechanical recycling. And that basically entails melting waste polyester feedstock and basically remolding that liquid plastic into something, either it's packaging or in our case, yarn and textiles. And that is by far the most mature and dominant process of recycling polyester um, on the market. And 
then by far the dominant feedstock for that process are waste water bottles. And if you kind of think about it, the reason for that is that water bottles just happen to be almost the ideal thing to recycle because it's so ubiquitous. It is colorless. It is food grade. So it's relatively high purity. It's a high grade of polymer, which means that it starts with pretty good properties. So when you recycle it, even if you lose some of the properties, you still get a pretty strong and usable material. So that's why for our feedstock, the vast majority of recycled polyester is coming from wastewater bottles. And then from there, you asked about the different players in this market. So as you can probably imagine, the waste first has to be collected. And in China, this happens in mainly a few different ways. One is you have your municipal waste systems. So basically, kind of like many other places in the world, you have household recycling and it's collected into a municipal waste system where the bottles can be separated out. Or you actually have also, in some places, you walk around and you can see people reaching into garbage cans to fish out the plastic bottles. So you have kind of these informal collectors who are collecting the bottles to then sell to waste collection centers for money because these bottles are now a valuable feedstock. So through these collection methods, these bottles usually end up at a waste processing center where they will do an initial sort, sort the bottles from the non-bottles, and then bale the bottles. So basically crush them into these big bricks. And then for people like us, we will come in and buy the bales. Usually it is a recycler that comes in and buys the bales. So because our first operation is actually a recycling operation, so we can come in and take mm. that raw bale and process it further into what we need to feed a yarn and fabric manufacturing operation. That's so interesting. So what does that look like? You buy this bale of compressed plastic water bottles. They enter your facility. Can you take us through what happens next? Yeah. So if you come visit our factory, which by the way, we generally have an open door policy for everyone we work with. So that's something that we really like to do is show people how it's done, right? So if you walk in, the first thing you'll see is kind of these floor to ceiling stacks of dirty bottle bricks. And you'll not only see them, you'll also smell them because <laughs> they are refuse. They came from the trash. And then you'll see next to them is basically a sorting line. So what that looks like is the bottles are unbailed and the bottles themselves are separated from the caps and the labels. Manually? Uh, not manually. There are automated processes of doing it, thankfully. So yeah. um, a first wash, for example, can release the label. And then the bottle caps go and we actually sell those to a recycler that is using the material for the caps specifically. 
But then we're really only interested in the bottles themselves, and we need those to be as pure as possible. So then there's further washing and shredding and then washing. And then after that last wash, it needs to be dried in order to be fed into the spinning operation, which is right next door. Fascinating. So you've already, I think, maybe started to hint at this when you're talking about, oh, we have to take off the labels and the caps go somewhere else. And we like water bottles because they're clear and they're of a high quality plastic. But could you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges or constraints that you face in terms of inputs and the raw materials that you need to make recycled polyester? Yeah. So what comes to mind first, and I think this would come to mind first for anyone who's worked in the recycled materials industry generally around the world, but very specifically in China, which is that in 2018, China enacted a ban on all waste imports. Mm. And this was driven by basically China was importing all sorts of waste from all around the world. And the processing of that waste caused a lot of environmental damage. And there was also this narrative component that wasn't easy to stomach, which was, you know, we are the waste sorters for the whole world, right? We are the garbage dump for everyone else. Mm. Um, So that ban was enacted and that actually stemmed a significant portion of the raw material flow that recyclers like us were dependent on because a lot of our bottles were coming from overseas as well. And after that shock, not only did a lot of recyclers go out of business, it actually limited our recycled polyester feedstock supply, the waste bottle supply, to a domestic supply, which, I mean, fortunately, China is a huge country with a huge population and, you know, there's no shortage of waste. (laughs) Or I don't know how, if that's fortunate. Yeah, fortunately, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. Two sides of the coin, I suppose. Exactly. But I mean, the fortunate thing is that the recycling Mm -hmm. infrastructure was already in place to process a lot of that waste. So the lasting effect of that was that it has resulted in an increase in the price of recycled polyester generally. And today we sit in a system of recycled polyester will be around 10 to 30% more expensive than virgin polyester equivalents. And this is dependent on the oil price. So when oil is expensive, then recycled is comparatively cheap and vice versa. So that I would say is, um, is kind of the main constraint that we're seeing. And how about from a quality perspective? You know, like, I don't know if quality is the right word there, but like, why can't you use the caps? Or to even take it one step further, people might be wondering, like, could you use bottles from other types of drinks besides just water or plastic bags, shopping bags? Or to take it even further, why not even just someone's old yoga pants, right? Yeah. (laughs) And that is absolutely the dream. The answer for, you know, why not these other materials like caps are usually Mm -hmm. made out of polypropylene or high-density polyethylene. Plastic bags are usually made out of low-density polyethylene. And all of those are materials that have uses in their own rights. But the textile properties that we're looking for are really 
mostly produced by polyester. And of course, we have other kinds of synthetic textiles, but right now, not a huge market for, say, polyethylene or polypropylene-based textiles. <laughs> uh, although I'm seeing some polypropylene stuff on the fringes, actually, which is interesting. So that is kind of the reason why we can't roll all of those different things into our textile recycling system. I think the question about, say, polyester yoga pants is a really good question. So underlying question being, why are we stuck on just water bottles, right? Because from a circularity perspective, ideally, we would recycle water bottles into water bottles and textiles into textiles. So polyester textiles into polyester textiles. And the answer is technology. And both from a bottle to bottle recycling perspective, it's hard to maintain the purity needed to make a new water bottle when your feedstock is coming from a waste source. Although now people are starting to crack that and we're seeing that happen in places like Europe. Then from a textile to textile recycling side, there is also a certain level of purity needed to feed into the textile spinning system such that when you make and extrude your yarn, you actually have a certain quality. And it turns out that, as you can imagine, textile waste, like waste polyester that has been worn and dragged through the environment and, you know, dyed. treated in all sorts of different ways. Yeah. Yes, dyed, finished, blended sometimes with different kinds of fibers, generally is just a much less pure feedstock than waste bottles and much harder to purify and clean and separate into a usable state. So actually there are certain other recycling processes. So I mentioned mechanical recycling, which is the dominant one right now, but there are at least 10 different companies working on chemical recycling technologies, which is a different way of recycling that can handle much higher impurity contents. So for the dream of achieving textile to textile recycling, we would have to look at recycling techniques beyond just mechanical recycling. Interesting. And when you and I talked before, you mentioned that something you often get asked about is traceability and being able to validate the recycled nature of your inputs, that there aren't, you know, water bottles being fabricated just to be turned into recycled polyester used in the apparel sector. I mean, how do you usually respond to those types of questions and what are the different ways of validating the recycled nature of your inputs? The industry standard for tracing recycled materials, for polyester at least, is called the Global Recycled Standard, or GRS. There's also a related standard called, I want to say, RCS. Basically, these are systems where every player in the supply chain is audited and given a scope depending on their manufacturing capabilities. So, for example, for Bitron scope, we would go all the way from bottle flake to fabric and also including yarn in between. Whereas if there were just a yarn spinner that was making using recycled feedstock for spinning yarn, then their scope would just be recycled yarn. And so through these audits, we understand 
the capacity, the scope of each player in the supply chain. And then there are a complementary set of what's called transaction certificates, which essentially monitors and proves the flow of materials from bottle flake to recycled yarn to recycled fabric between these players, between the holders of the scope certificates. So basically the framework is a combination of scope certificates and transaction certificates. That's the main kind of industry standard. While I would say many brands who can afford to are also going beyond that into really trying to get to know their upstream suppliers. So usually brands deal mostly with their cut and sew finished good factories, but now more and more we're seeing that people are going upstream and trying to have conversations with who's supplying the fabric, who's supplying the yarn, and then how do we know that yarn was made from recycled content. The question you mentioned of the rumors of people making new bottles just to create, quote, recycle and (laughs) and make recycled. You know, when we first heard about this, I would say our our production team and CEO, our company leadership, were just baffled. Yeah. uh, Because actually, from a cost perspective, to do that is actually, yes, we do pay to buy our dirty bottles, but to basically buy the equivalent of clean bottles is going to be much more expensive than actually using dirty bottles. So from just from a cost perspective, we don't think that's a preferred way of doing things. But it is possible that because sustainability is becoming a growing demand and more people are trying to enter into the recycled fabric space, when you try to do that and you're used to making, say, spinning from virgin polyester, you're going to run into new challenges when your feedstock is way less pure, way less consistent, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> way more caveats in your feedstock. So perhaps from a technical perspective, while working out the kinks, it's much easier to manufacture from clean bottles first <laughs> and then switch to dirty bottles. But that would be, I, I would say, our, our best guess at where those rumors are coming from, um, because it does not actually make economic sense. Yeah, so much to think about. I want to go back to the spinning, because we kind of, when we were talking about processes, we left off, you had painted this picture of, you know, that you had processed these plastic bottles into little pellets. So how do we go from a hard plastic pellet, whether it's made from recycled plastic water bottles or whether it's a virgin material. How do we go from that into a yarn or, you know, something that's soft and can be (laughs) woven? And is that process the same? I mean, is a pellet a pellet and turning that pellet into a yarn, is that sort of the same regardless of the type of input or is it different for if you have virgin pellets versus recycled? Yeah, those are great questions. So I would actually first say that while you can get recycled polyester pellets as a feedstock, to paint you a more accurate picture of what happens in our factory and at some other factories is that we actually directly spin with bottle flake. So it's just roughly chopped bottles. And we actually don't have to 
revert or to melt that flake into a pellet form before it's spun. If you do get recycled polyester raw material on the general commodities market, it will generally be a pellet form because that's kind of the, the standard way people form of feeding into whether it be injection molding or yarn spinning. But because, again, that we are vertically integrated because our sorting operation that produces the flake is right next door to our spinning operation that turns that flake into yarn, we can just pipe that flake right next door and not have to convert it into a pellet form. So as you imagine this, imagine, you know, plastic bottle confetti. Okay, okay. So beyond that, I would say the general process of spinning polyester yarn is, is quite similar, whether virgin or recycled. So the main way of spinning polyester is called melt spinning, and it's pretty self-explanatory. To paint you a picture of the spinning facility, it's a multi-story building where the bottle flake actually is starts at the top of the building and is stored in a silo there. And as the spinning happens, it falls kind of down from the silo into an oven where it's heated. And then it's fed into a screw-driven kind of typical extrusion process where it's further heated until melting. And in that liquid state, the polyester solution now is forced through what we call spinnerets, which are plates with metal plates with tiny holes in them. And they're, like they just come out. Exactly, like a shower head or a pasta maker, mm-hmm. where, where it just kind of squeezes out into fine filaments and they fall from the ceiling where the spinnerets are to the floor. And as it falls, it cools off and turns from liquid back into solid. And that now yarn is wrapped by these rotating spools. And these spools are actually going at quite high speed. So it actually kind of pulls the yarn as it comes out. And finally, you get a spool of of raw yarn through that process. And basically the main difference between recycled and virgin would be if you have any impurities in the recycled process, you can imagine when you're forcing that through these fine holes in the spinneret, you're going to have clogging, you're going to have breakage, you're going to have defects in the spinning process. Huh. And so what about like if you're making a blended yarn? Would that be done sort of at this stage that you would maybe add, like you see polycotton blends, you see elastane, I I don't know, whatever you're at, you decide you want to add to it? Yeah, that's a great question. So generally in the melt spinning stage, you're dealing with pure polyester. Maybe you'll add some additives such as titanium dioxide, which kind of gives the yarn whiteness and opacity. But generally, you're in terms of the main material, it's going to be all polyester. Blends are usually achieved in further yarn processing or in the fabric weaving itself. So, for example, you can make a polycotton blend by taking a, you know, a melt spun polyester fiber and wrapping 
cotton yarn around that on the outside. So you get kind of the strength of the polyester on the inside and a cottony feel on the outside of the yarn. And then you can take that yarn and go weave it into fabric and you'll have a poly cotton blend fabric. You can also achieve a poly cotton blend by taking pure polyester yarn and using it in the weaving process as the warp. And you can take pure cotton yarn, for example, and use it in the weaving process as a weft. And your final fabric will still also be a poly cotton blend, but at that point, it will have a different effect than if you had achieved that blend through the yarn processing. Interesting. So I want to talk a little bit about the weaving stage then, because in my head, I'm assuming that weaving for recycled polyester is the same and is the way that you guys do that is the same as any company doing weaving with any type of material uh, would do it. Is that a fair assumption to make or is weaving recycled polyester yarn different than weaving other types of yarn? Yeah, exactly. So at the weaving stage, you're pretty much far enough from that original raw material that you just treat it very similarly. So you'll have mills that weave both virgin and recycled on the same machines. Of course, our factory only deals with recycled, but we're using the same types of machines that any polyester weaver would use. You will have different machines used for cotton versus polyester, but in general, all polyester can use similar weaving machines. And I'm curious because we've talked about weaving, but you haven't talked about knitting. Do you guys do knitting as well? Yeah, so you can use the same yarn for knitting or weaving. We just happened to start in applications that required more wovens, but we are in our third facility also onboarding knitting machines. So absolutely, you can use our pet for both. Okay, interesting. So, okay, you've painted us a really clear picture, and I I feel so grateful, privileged that I got to sit here and ask you all these questions, but you've painted such a clear picture of how you go from plastic bottle to finished fabric. But one part that we haven't necessarily talked about is the dyeing and what are maybe some of the processes that are happening in parallel or around (laughs) this sort of core flow that we've just talked about. And so I'm curious if you would be willing to talk a little bit about that, whether you guys are doing the dyeing yourselves and why that might be, but also if you could just maybe describe what color are these materials at the outset? And, you know, what is the process for giving a recycled polyester fabric a color? And is this the same or is this different to a a virgin polyester? Yeah, so I would say generally it will be quite similar. So to paint a picture of the dyeing process, and I should preface this by saying we don't actually do the dyeing in-house. I would say this is where we rely on experts because dyeing itself is a very complicated and unique, both chemical and physical process. Like a secret sauce. Yeah, exactly. Really though, it's like alchemy Mm -hmm. sometimes. And um, customers are also very particular about the color. Um, 
you know, the, <laughs> the times that we've gone through iterations where like by eye, we can't tell any different, but like the designer says, no, 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 this is not the right shade of yellow, you know, <laughs> and know. it's just, and it's just, it's just such an important quality of the fabric. So because also there's a lot of unique dyes and chemicals and equipment necessary, we basically subcontract out to a Blue Sign certified dye house. And Blue Sign is, you know, an industry leading environmental certification. And what I know about dyeing is not necessarily what I've seen with my own eyes, but what I've learned in doing my job and speaking with our production team. So for conventional batch dyeing, when your fabric comes off the loom, it is grayish again. So this is like a, a grayish, beigeish white, and then it will get sent to the dye house. And generally for polyester, the dyeing process is pretty aggressive. So like most batch dyeing processes, you submerge the fabric in a big water bath. Usually it contains around 1,000 meters of fabric at a time, which is why you see a lot of MOQs hover around 1,000 meters. So you'll put that in a, a water bath containing all the dyes. And for polyester, the type of dyes we use are called dispersed dyes. And the unique property of polyester that requires an aggressive dyeing process is that it, you know, polyester as a material just doesn't like to absorb water. And so it's hard to carry color molecules, dyes, into the material. And when I say aggressive, what do I mean by that? I mean, usually you have to heat the water to boiling, or actually some operations will add pressure to the vat such that the water temperature can exceed 100 degrees Celsius. And so that will accelerate the dyeing even more. And even at such high temperatures, you it's still a process that can take up to a few hours. So it's water intensive, it's energy intensive. After you get the dye to basically diffuse or enter into the surface of the fibers, then you have to run it through multiple uh, water baths to basically clean off the excess dye. And then all of that water, used water becomes effluent that needs to be treated and to a state where it can be released. So that's kind of what the dyeing process looks like. There are a lot of people working on alternatives. One of the processes that Bytron has really spearheaded is called solution dyeing or dope dyeing, which is kind of this alternative to this conventional batch dyeing process, where instead of dyeing the fabric after it comes off the loom, you actually introduce the dye at the point of extruding the yarn. So as I mentioned, when you extrude the yarn, the PET is already in liquid form. So you can actually introduce dyes and pigments at that stage without using any extra heat and it, it's no extra water involved. So that is one alternative to the conventional batch dyeing process that can produce a lot of environmental savings. So this is actually, I would say, beyond using a recycled feedstock. One of our, the most exciting things that we're providing the industry 
this solution dyeing has been around, but because of various challenges around the process, as you can imagine, if you're if you're coloring during the yarn spinning instead of the batch dyeing, for batch dyeing, you can go 1,000 meters at a time or even less, right? But for yarn, if you're coloring during spinning, which is, you know, we're talking about tons of yarn being spun per hour, that you end up with MOQs that are very high per color. So usually it's in the range of... 50,000 to up to 200,000 meters per color. And that's just really untenable for most brands, even the really large ones. So what Baichuan has been working on are ways to arrange the process and the color development in advance so that we can really solve this MOQ challenge, which has been kind of the main barrier for adoption by the industry. What do you mean by that? Like, you mean like working with clients or with brands to sort of predefine different color ranges that then they would buy in bulk for like a couple of seasons or something like that? Or Yeah, I think that is one way to do it. But short of that, we have actually pre-developed almost 1,000 colors of yarn. Oh, that you hold the inventory yourselves. We hold the formulation and some inventory for such that then we can start approaching the color system that's usually used in textiles, right? Which is the designer provides a Pantone color and then we can come back with a yarn or fabric color that gets very close to the desired Pantone. Right. So it's like you guys have a catalog of colors that a designer could choose from, and you also then hold, for some of those colors, hold inventory that's ready to go so that instead of one client or one brand having to hit your MOQ, you're then using that same color across a range of different types of products and customers. Is that a fair? Yeah, exactly. And we've gotten so good at using the solution dyed process that because we know the formulation, we don't have to do trial runs, which, you know, when you're trialing things at a a commercial yarn spinning scale, it generates a lot of waste. Mm. And at the same time, we are able to, if our inventory isn't enough, we can actually produce more yarn in a controlled quantity that also very closely matches the original color, which is also a challenge when you are doing multiple different runs of solution dyed yarn. For you, does that, as a company, does that take a lot of, I mean, holding inventory of all those colors or even some of those colors, right? Like the number of colors that people want is almost infinite, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's a it's a big investment in terms of working capital, in terms of like cash tied up in in yeah. inventory, you know? Like, is that something that you guys get support for financing from, I don't know, the brands that you're producing for or? In general, we built out the platform first because we knew that this was a chicken or egg problem, right? Yeah. Everyone wants the environmental benefits of solution dyeing, but no one can hit the MOQs. It's a lot of financial risk, it is a lot of financial risk. Yeah. But we bit the bullet on that. And I would say we've figured out a way to do it in a relatively economical way where we minimize the stock. We still hold some stock, but 
it's not probably as extensive as you would imagine yeah to hit every single color of fabric that someone would would desire a lot of digitalization involved as well hmm. I want to come full circle. So you've sent the fabric out to the dye house. You've gotten it back. What's the finished product you're actually selling? Is it a roll of dyed fabric? And to whom are you selling that roll of fabric? Because we've talked a lot about brands and retailers. I always like to emphasize that often that's not where the direct commercial relationship is. Yeah, exactly. So just as a side note to close that full manufacturing loop, Mm. after the dyeing, oftentimes fabrics also need to be finished, which finishing is a whole different chemical and mechanical process. All, All sorts of different finishings exist. Can you maybe just give a quick flavor of like, what are the different things we might be trying to achieve with finishing? Yeah. So with finishing, it basically means that you're processing the fabric in a way that gives it certain properties that weren't there in the original fabric right off the loom. So as an example, if you want your fabric to have a a softer kind of fuller hand feel, you can do a what's called a peaching finish, which is basically when you kind of run the fabric through rollers that have some grit on them, that it kind of like produces a micro fuzzy effect. Like a brushed effect. A brushed effect, exactly. So that's one type of finishing that relies more on a mechanical process. You can also have more chemical type finishings where certain sports apparel needs to be highly waterproof yet breathable. So then you would actually take your fabric and you would laminate a breathable membrane onto Mm -hmm. it to give it that special kind of breathability function that you'd want. And that membrane itself has unique chemical properties as well. And are these things that you guys are doing in-house as well? Some of these we do. So more conventional finishes we do. And then there are some also specialty finishes that like dyeing ends up in a very kind of complicated chemical realm that we rely on experts to do. Fascinating. Actually, we are doing a whole episode in this series on finishing, but let's close the loop. Okay, so the fabric has been finished. What happens next? Yeah, so the finished product that we're selling for us, we right now do around half our sales in yarn and half our sales in fabric. But I think probably from a strategic vantage point, we would like to work more closely with the overseas teams. And by overseas, I mean, not in China. So usually when we look at the markets that care about eco-friendly fabrics, Europe is definitely a leading one. And then North America is also in, in the fray. So A lot of the brands are headquartered there where the designers are, the sustainability teams are, the marketing teams are, and they usually have their production networks all around the world. So whether that be in Asia or other parts of Europe or even somewhere else. So when we work directly with brands, we do a lot of collaboration with their designers. So We help create and iterate on a product, help them choose the right fabric for the effect they're trying to achieve. And when they choose that fabric, we usually will provide the fabric samples 
to their cut and sew manufacturers to make samples. And then there's kind of a back and forth that goes on. Once we settle on a product to be made or the brand decides what they're going to make, right? Then there will be a commercial order placed with their usually finished product manufacturer with the instruction that this is a specific fabric that we want to use because of its sustainability profile or its performance or looks. And then their finished product manufacturer will come and buy, place a fabric order with us. So even though we work, we interact a lot with the brand teams, ultimately the commercial order comes through their finished manufacturer. And usually that's easiest for for taxes, for transportation, because a lot of manufacturers are still in China. And so we're both working with the brand side and the manufacturers. And we are selling usually many, many rolls of dyed and finished fabric to the cut and sew manufacturer. This has been such an education. To close this interview, is there anything that you would like to say that you haven't had a chance to talk about? Um, First of all, thank you. (laughs) I would just say kind of in my experience of having many, many conversations with teams that have great intentions and a lot of expertise in the textile industry of trying to move into more sustainable fabrics, that there is a strong need for kind of a a more data-driven and kind of science-driven approach. I think things are hard for many reasons. One is because the supply chain is is so long and there many of these processes that I'm describing are so far away that it's hard to envision and know exactly what's happening. And two, because these manufacturing processes are happening in places that generally, you know, are not kind of English-based communities. And I've seen a lot of communication problems happen. But I just think for anyone working in this space to have this drive to really understand the material from a a more fundamental level so that you can stand by the environmental claims that you're making um, and really know what you're dealing with. I think that's going to be really important moving forward um, in this industry. So, yeah some words of encouragement. (laughs) I think that's the perfect note to end on. Thank you, Sharon. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to Manufacture. I've been your host, Kim von der Weert, and if you learned something new from this episode and want to support the show, come say hi to me on LinkedIn or drop me an email on kim at manufacturedpodcast.com. And of course, subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you're listening to this episode on. Take a look at the episode description for all the details and stay tuned for more.